First episode of Panic Mode, the podcast for gamers and game designers, with your hosts who have not stopped playing Halo 3 since 2007, Shelby and myself. Who are you? Oh, I'm Aiden. <laughs> Hi, Aiden. I'm Shelby. And <laughs> today's episode is going to be on luck and skill in game design and how they manifest themselves in various faculties. But first, what do we have to ask the most pressing question? Shelby, what is a Panic Mode? Panic mode <laughs> is what Aiden and I refer to as the part in the game design process where something goes wrong, an obstacle comes up, and you begin to panic. <laughs> it sounds like every part of game design. It really, really is. So when you start the game to that initial idea to the day after you have shipped the game, there will be moments of trial and error and sweat and tears and possibly even some blood <laughs> where panicking happens. But it's also just a part of life. It's a part of game design. And through this podcast, we hope to help you embrace the panic by taking a look behind the scenes of game design and understanding the medium in a new way. And as a supplementary goal to the podcast, definitely secondary to the educational aspects, we want to help you become a better gamer by understanding game design, which I think is an underrated perk of being a good game designer. Who are we to tell you all this about what game design is or isn't? Oh, we went over this. I'm Aiden. Oh, it's true. Sorry. And I'm Shelby. <laughs> we both have experience as indie game developers, and I've also worked in the professional AAA industry with companies like Edmonton Bioware, uh, responsible for games like Mass Effect and Dragon Age. No, I've not had the luxury to go AAA yet, but from what you tell me, it's quite something. It is quite something. It's it's a it's a huge process, and I'm excited to take a deeper dive into what the industry looks like behind the scenes. Excellent. Well, you ready to get into it? I definitely am. Let's right. do luck versus skill. Shelby, what is a luck? What is a luck? <laughs> that is a great question. For me, luck is something that can be good or bad <laughs> depending on the outcome. If something favorable happens, you had good luck. If something bad happens, it was bad luck. But most of all, it's never your fault. <laughs> That's the spirit, kid. But more firmly, the definition of luck would be something to the effect of when something happens in a game where more than one thing could possibly happen and no player involved could can fully predict which one it will be. Yeah. So as simple as flipping a coin. The game is flipping a coin. Neither player can predict which side it's going to land on unless you're two-faced and you both sides are heads. Because <laughs> you probably can. And that's a random event. And you're lucky if it's the one you picked, if you predicted it correctly. Yes. In games, this most commonly manifests itself with things like dice or cards or RNG in video games, which is shorthand for random number generator, which is essentially just the game rolling a dice. So luck isn't as intuitive and simple as you might think it is. Now, skill is similarly easy to understand. It's how good you are at something, but let's take it a bit more in depth. So a more in-depth definition of what skill is, in terms of game design especially, is defined by Jesse Shell in the textbook The Art of Game Design, which we'll link for you guys if anybody's interested in checking it out or some of the points. And he divides skill into three main categories, physical, mental, and social. So for him, physical skills are defined as strength, dexterity, coordination, endurance. You might think of physical skills being largely associated with sports, but for video games, it's something like how fast your reaction time is in a first-person shooter, for example. Or as D.Va would say, you gotta raise my APM. Exactly. What is, and what is that? Actions per minute. There you go. So that's what physical skills are kind of considered in video games in the real world as the player. So mental skills are defined as being memory, observation, puzzle solving, decision making, and I think this one is the most popular for being associated with video games, especially in, um, you know, heavily narrative-driven games like making 
making a decision for what you want your character to do or walking around in portal and solving those puzzles. Those are all mental skills. And then finally, we've got social skills. So this comes down to reading an opponent, coordinating with teammates, uh, basically relating to people and talking with people. So I think these are mostly associated with PvP games, player versus player. So these can be anything from competitive games where maybe you're playing magic and you're kind of trying to read if your opponent is bluffing or not, if, if they've got that card that's going to end you or what. But also with team games like Overwatch, for example, which is a um, cooperative, I don't know, what, what is Overwatch defined as? Uh, I think it's a team-based shooter. Team-based shooter, there this. you go. So a team-based shooter where you are on a team with five other people and then plus yourself and you are against another team of six and you guys are trying to hopefully communicate with but one another. Well-coordinated teams will always yeah, outperform the other. A well-coordinated team, exactly. So that's... Being able to coordinate with each other's door voice chat or typing whatever is a huge skill. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Just being kind of, you know, not a jerk to other people as well. That's also a part of it. So if we went over that too fast, uh, physical mental and social skills, I prefer to remember it as the triple Bs. The triple Bs. So instead of physical, mental, and social, we've got the brawn, the brain, and the bamboozle. Oh, that's that's brilliant, Aiden. Triple B. I like it. <laughs> so, the only word of that I'm going to remember is bamboozle. I, just, I know. I, I just hope you know. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm going to tell you what the triple Bs are. There's the B, the B, and the bamboozle. Perfect. <laughs> All right. Anyway. One of the distinctions to make quickly is between real and virtual skills. Shelby, what is a real skill? So a real skill is something that you as listeners and us as players, we all have. We all have real skills. So for example, when you're playing a game like Dark Souls, which was released in 2011, it is an RPG. It's known for being very difficult, um, but... In Dark Souls, there's a lot of areas because there's no map. And so you need to have a good idea of the environment around you. So a real skill is as the player learning where to go, learning where shortcuts are. Those are all things that you as the player understand and remember. A virtual skill is something that your character in the game has. These are not something that you possess, they are your character. So a good example of this is The Witcher uh, Wild Hunt. So The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt came out in 2015. It is also an RPG where you play as Geralt, a standard character for you. And he's got a sword as a, as a, a good weapon example of his. And he gains skill points a lot and you can spend skill points however you want leveling up your character. This is a virtual skill. Whenever you level up Geralt, you feel a little bit more powerful, you unlock a new ability and it makes you feel like you're making a little bit of progress through the game. So just a quick summary, virtual are in-game stat increases is a good way to think of it and real skills are improving the understanding of the game as a whole. So let's talk about some practical examples about yeah. how luck and skill can manifest themselves in games. So the first example we want to discuss is a game that has low skill and low luck, which is kind of hard to do because you need at least one to have, a, to have it be a game at all, or else you're just sitting in a room, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> That's a good way to think about it. So sitting best... in a room is <laughs> low So what is luck. one step up from sitting in a room? Tic-tac-toe. Yes. <laughs> so the low skill in tic-tac-toe comes from there only being so many combinations that you can play before you win. And even less for rational players. If yes. someone is threatening to win in one move, they have two lined up, you really only have one defensive maneuver. Exactly. If someone draws an O on the nine square grid, you're probably going to put an X somewhere between their O and a possible other O so that they don't win because you want to win. So there's very few possibilities and that's why it's considered low skill because there's only so many combinations and they're extremely easy and intuitive yeah. to remember. 
But it's also a low luck game because I don't remember ever rolling a dice to decide where I go in tic-tac-toe. Yes, there's very little, sorry, there is no RNG in tic-tac-toe. And I think the only way luck would come in is if your opponent is like super sleepy or like really out of it. And then like they like miss a move by accident. I have no idea. And and perhaps you would feel lucky because often tic-tac-toe ends in ties. So if you win, you might feel a little lucky because your opponent messed up. Not only does tic-tac-toe almost always end in times, if you play perfectly, it will always end in a tie. Yes. So if this is your, this is one of your first few gamer pro tips. <laughs> you, if you are paying attention, you should never lose tic-tac-toe. You should always draw or win. Yes, exactly. So yes, tic-tac-toe, low luck, low skill. Let's move to the other end of the spectrum now, which high is... High luck, high skill. Exactly. So highly what do we have for this? volatile. <laughs> highly volatile. I like that. Speaking of highly volatile, uh, Settlers of Catan. Also known as Catan, a game that was originally published in the 90s and has just become one of the biggest board games ever. I think yeah. it's been kind of one of the flagships of like the renaissance of board games the past 15 years exactly. or so. And if anyone has not been blessed with the wonderful playthrough of Settlers of Catan, it's just basically resource management. You get resources based on dice rolls. That's really all you need to know. So what makes Catan a skilled game? So the high skill comes in because in the opening of the game, you need to set your settlements. And where you set your settlements is dependent upon what numbers you are attached to to roll for resources. So if you're setting up your starting settlements and you put them on a number 2, a number 11, and a number 12, that's probably not a great starting position because there are two dice that are being rolled and the likelihood of those numbers being rolled are much lower than setting up your settlements on a six or an eight, for example. So where the high skill comes in is initially knowing where to set up your resources. I think high skill also comes in in a social context, actually, because a lot of the game is based off trading with the players around you. And sometimes you can even convince the other players, if there's like four of you playing, for example, you can convince the other three that there is one person who is really ahead and then you all start just working against that person and you just take them down so that they never want to play the game ever, ever again because they had such a traumatizing experience. But I mean, hey, everybody's different. Everyone has a different play style. Do you want to get something off your chest? No, I really don't, Aiden, but thank you for asking. (laughs) All right. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the luck in Catan comes from the dice rolling every turn. Yes, the high luck is because basically all the decisions that you can make, while there are many decisions... It's based off luck. And they are important. Yes, and the decisions are important, which does make it high skill, but they're based on whether you get lucky and your numbers are rolled because those numbers are what give you your resources in order to know what to buy, whether you buy a resource, a development card. Everything is based off the luck, basically. So that's why it's high skill and high luck. Okay, let's move on to low skill, high luck. Low skill and high luck. This is an easy one. (laughs) All right, lay it on me. Pretty much any gambling game. Yahtzee, (laughs) poker, you name it. Let's go with Yahtzee. Yeah. You roll a bunch of dice, you make a poker hand. (laughs) Ta-da. You win. Yay. (laughs) So I think the common thing that you'll see among low skill, high luck games is there's often a mathematically perfect strategy or a way to like get the best EV, which stands for expected value. Mm Mm-hmm. Is, for instance, in a hand of blackjack, there's a fairly like lengthy table that discusses what you should do in any given situation if you want to play mathematically perfectly. It's not about feeling the cards or like, oh, do I hit a hard 15? Do I not hit a hard 15? Well, it depends on what the dealer's showing, and that's it. There's a mathematical answer to whether you should or shouldn't. Interesting. So it really is just the skill comes in at, at least at the bare minimum knowing <laughs> when to do that, but it's low skill because you have a threshold yes. and you're like, well, do I hit or do I it's not? It's a very firm skill ceiling. I'll so what say you're saying much. is I should leave my rabbit's foot at home. It's not going to help me when I'm <laughs> when I'm at the tables being like, hit me or don't. I mean, you do you, man. 
Alright, low luck, high skill. Can you hazard a guess as to what this is? Oh man, a game that doesn't have any RNG, but you need to be just really good at it to win. Let me think. Hearthstone. Overwatch. Dang it. <laughs> chess. Wow, chess is a great... fired at Blizzard. <laughs> chess is a great example of this. Yes, so chess is a game with perfect information and no luck involved. Yeah. And deep complexity. Yes. It's essentially a game, when you get once you get to a high enough level, of seeing as far ahead as you can. And that's what makes it a super high skill game. Yeah. Now, the problem with these games is they can almost be exclusionary in their high skill level. Is that it's almost hard to find people to play chess against because you have to be in a very similar skill range or it's going to be very one-sided a lot of the time. Yes, which is something we're going to talk about a little bit later, but it's going to be why you sometimes do need some luck inserted into your games. Yes, so that is the problem with chess. Is you, a grandmaster cannot play against an amateur and have a good time. Both both <laughs> parties are just going to be like, well, that was, uh, yeah, shocking. Yep. You won. Yeah, <laughs> well, what a surprise. <laughs> I'm riveted. Yeah. Um, so a good segue, now that we've talked about chess and how complex that it can be, let's actually talk about the idea of complexity and go into that a little bit. So even in skill-based games like chess, we are actually sometimes ignorant to how our actions can impact gameplay to an extent. So let's take chess for an example, because that's what we've been talking about. So you've heard the statistic that after three moves of chess, there's something like 20 million different positions. Yes. I'm going to blow your mind. A human brain can't actually envision all that. Exactly. So what we're arguing for here is saying that even if you're, you're playing a game of chess and you make what is considered the perfect move in that moment you may actually not know that it was the perfect move. You could have just seen the board and said, you know what, <laughs> this is the only move that maybe you saw, for example, and you're like, yep, that seems fine, and you made it. But really, it could be the perfect one, but you would have maybe no way of knowing that because of the sheer volume of moves there are, and you wouldn't really know until the game played out fully to the end, right? And so the idea of complexity is just, we're kind of saying that there is a little bit of, of randomness involved, not in that you're making... Uh, not that RNG is involved at all, but in the idea that the move you could make could just be for the sake of making a move. And you could think, ah, hope, hopefully this works out. And then you yourself might feel lucky because maybe it did. Yeah. So if you take the, the inverse, if you look at a game like Tic-Tac-Toe, which mm -hmm. only has like significantly fewer permutations and combinations, which drop even lower if you're playing as a rational opponent, yes. you can envision every outcome. Exactly. So for Tic-Tac-Toe, there is no idea of complexity. There is no feeling of oh, I'm just going to put my piece here because that seems okay, and then having it work out and thinking, oh, man, I'm so lucky that that actually worked. It's like I played, if I make the first move, I know you're about to make one of eight different moves, and that's it. Exactly. I can, I can, I can draw every single picture of what the board's going to look like. Yeah, so even though chess, of course there isn't luck involved, it is an extremely skilled game, you can still feel lucky for having made a move that you didn't know how good it was at the time. So that's all we're pointing out there. All right, so let's talk about how this manifests itself in game design, and how much should we be using luck in game design? Sure, let's start with luck. So, luck is good for adding variance to a game. Now, variance is a good thing because it allows games to have novel situations, and kind of place a bigger emphasis on players having a fundamental understanding of the game, and being able to think on the fly. Yeah. And improvise their way through new situations. Like, if you look at a game like chess, I know we're going to be referencing it a lot in this scenario, <laughs> there's no room for improvisation. Yes, that that's very true. Many of the openings have been tuned to a point for the first 30 moves or so. Yeah, you yeah you know exactly what move you're going to make based on what your opponent does. It's all hardwired yes. into your brain. <laughs> on a high level, most players are just playing on autopilot for the first 25 moves because it's just been optimized. Yeah. That's because there's nothing, there's no variance been added. There's, there's no luck. 
yeah. what's happening. So on the other side, a game like Dominion, for example, which is a deck building game released in 2008, uh, you have basically piles that you start with and you draw from those piles in order to create your deck. And I think this is something you'll see in a lot of deck building games is you always get a new hand or just the cards you draw are going to have to affect your decision making every yeah, turn. Yeah, just deck building games in general. But why Dominion is such a good example is because at the start of each game, depending on how many expansions you have, you get to lay out those initial decks that you're drawing from to make yours and you can switch up the combination every time. So what this forces you to do is come up with new strategies on the fly because you're never really going to have the same pairing of cards to choose from. And so that makes a really interesting game because one time you might have a sweet, you know, okay, like plus three cards, just for example. And then that could be like your favorite card ever. And you like love to play that. But then let's say the next time you play the game, that card is no longer on the board and you have to find a new strategy that you really love and enjoy. Or being able to realize that this once unplayable card is all of a sudden completely busted with this new card that's on the board. <laughs> yeah, finding new combinations of cards and strategies as well is kind of an exciting and, and interesting yeah. time. So that's what luck can be good for. Just or RNG, taking some random stuff and making something new. Just imagine if chess, you could like choose your pieces at the start. <laughs> yeah, that, that would be, that would be wild. Oh, I, I, know, I know there's like a variant of chess called chess 960 that kind of exists like this, where the back ranks are randomized. Mm. That kind of requires some improvisation, but just being like, oh man, like what if I had this piece that could like shoot through pawns and stuff and just like, <laughs> yeah, just go having some novelty to the game every time. And it'd be very interesting. Yeah. And quick sidebar, just if you are not a board gamer and want to get into it, Start with Dominion. It is fantastic. Yes. You will get so much bang for your buck. Yeah, it's a highly recommended, really Over great Catan. game. Over Catan. <laughs> Over Catan. Yes, you will. Um, I think you'll still lose friends and, with Dominion, and, but and, perhaps and not tic -tac -toe. as many. Oh, yes. For sure tic -tac -toe that one. tic is third place in the Catan Dominion <laughs> Tic-Tac-Toe Bower Power Rankings. Interesting. So... Some, as far as designing games go, luck is also having a lot of lucky elements is really good for protecting your players' egos. Yes. That when someone wins, the other person can say, well, you got lucky. And they don't take it too hard. Yeah. By the same token, luck can broaden your audience and make the game more accessible. Hence again, why chess is very esoteric and can be kind of difficult to play with everyone. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Crazy Eights and Uno are just a, a bloody ball for all parties. Yeah, it's great, especially for, I guess we can use like a family, for example. So you've got, I don't know, parents, kids, whatever. Um, the parents might be intense board gamers and they could just be teaching their kids how to board game as well. And so it's great. Um, luck is great for this because the kids actually stand a chance of winning because there is some RNG inserted into the game and they could just get lucky and win a game here and there, which, which is nice. It means that there is, there is an aspect of suspense because you don't know who's going to win each time. You could actually think, oh my goodness, like I might not be the one that wins here. And that can make the gameplay experience kind of exciting and, and interesting because you don't know what the outcome is going to be. All right, let's talk about how skill works in game design. So when understanding how skill works in game design, you have to understand it in terms of a skill floor and a skill ceiling. Essentially, a skill floor is how, how much skill the player needs just to be able to operate in the game. Mm -hmm. And a skill ceiling is just like how good they could possibly get at the game. Okay. So a game with a low floor and a low ceiling is a game like tic-tac-toe. <laughs> because it's the low floor is because it's really easy to pick up. It's, the rules are very clear, They're, the move sets are very clear, it's very clear what you need to do, how to play, and it's got a low ceiling because there's not much uh, you can do with it. There's not a lot of places you can go. You either get the game or you don't, and you know to put an X in front of an O or you don't. That's basically all there is. Or you lose now and then and feel very foolish. Yes. <laughs> and the opposite, a game with a high floor and a high ceiling is Dota 2, made by Valve. Yes, that's a good example. So Dota 2 is notorious, I think, for being extremely difficult to learn. But also, once you do learn it, there's a lot that you can do with it. There's 
um, the master level of kind of competency that you can reach with the game. And a game with a low floor and a high ceiling, which is in some ways like what you should be kind of gunning for in most aspects, the the proverbial easy to learn, hard to master. Yes. A game like Guitar Hero. Totally, totally. Where there's like a very simple difficulty setting. You pick it up and off you go. Yeah. But then you can also play through the fire and the flames on two times speed. <laughs> Backwards. Backwards, blindfolded, <laughs> without a Guitar Hero controller at all. Yeah. So I think this is easy to learn, hard to master. It's It's got, it's intuitive enough that you are able to pick it up and kind of understand the base mechanics, but then there's so much that you can do with it. There's so many combinations that you can learn and just really just kind of go nuts. And of course, that's not indicative of like whether it's a good game or a bad game. I think high floors, you know, hard to learn games are also worth it and awesome. Um, but low floor, high ceiling is generally a good model for um, for starting out and kind of embracing your player base because it's very it's open to lots of people because um, there will be less frustration perhaps <laughs> in learning initially. And finally, let's talk about a low ceiling and a high floor. Yeah. Which, this was a hard one because if you, hard. if you think about it, a room that has a high floor and a low ceiling, there's not a lot of space to stand. It's a very small room. It really is. <laughs> and we deliberated a bunch of different examples here. Yeah. But truthfully, we couldn't think of one that actually embodied what we were trying to talk about. Essentially, a game with a high floor and a low ceiling is a game that is difficult to understand and requires a lot and is asking a lot of the player to be able to play it but doesn't have a lot of room for growth. Yeah, so usually when a game is that complex, there generally is room yes. for growth. And we couldn't think of an example that where there wasn't. The, the one that I think we got closest to settling on was Dark Souls. Yeah. Because the game is very complex and can be very overwhelming to new players. But once you kind of understand what the grind is all about, it, it's not... It, you, you kind of get to a level of mastery very quickly. Yes, but the reason we thought, well, that's not really a low ceiling is because there's actually so much you can challenge yourself with with the game because you can start doing speed runs, for example. You can play with a blindfold. You can play with a rock band, like a Guitar Hero controller. Um, I think there's... And admittedly, these are obviously outside of the original yeah, designs. Yeah, but I think it's still a way to, like... It's a, it's a self-challenge for yourself, and there are new heights that you can take it to. Um, but yeah, Dark Souls was the closest that we got. So we're asking you, as the listeners, um, reach out to us on Twitter, panicmode, at panicmode.net, all spelled out. And if you can think of a game that is really hard to learn, but then doesn't really go anywhere after that, we would love to know. Because, um, yeah, we couldn't... Uh, and we'll we talk about it in a future episode, because it yeah. feels very weird having this blank hole yeah. in this area of game theory. Yeah, or maybe you agree with us about our Dark Souls example and you think that, sure, if it is a contained experience where you learn it and then once you learn it, you're good to go, well, let us know that too. We're, we're interested. Or maybe you're already typing in angry caps that Dota 2 has a low floor and you guys are wrong. <laughs> yes, we are just, we are, we are very bad Dota 2 players, so that could very well be it. So let's talk about what we've been trying to get to this whole episode. The relationship between luck and skill. Yes, how the two interact. Yes, how do they interact? They don't, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> so we already said that luck is not the opposite of skill, which I think is an important point, which is why I'm reiterating it. But to give an example of this, we're actually going to return to our chess example. Yay, chess. I'm so sorry for any of you out there who hate chess. I really am. But this is actually a bit of a different game, so you're in luck. Ha 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 ha. This is called Rando Chess. And the way Rando Chess works is that two players play a regular game of chess. But at the end of it, they roll a dice. And the player who won that regular game of chess, if they roll a 1 to a 5, they win. And it's all good. But if the player who lost that game of chess happens to roll a 6 they actually end up winning. 
So the reason this is an interesting example is because the only luck that comes into the game is at the very end. The same amount of skill is still needed in order to play the chess game because you might still win if you have a, sorry, you have a higher chance of winning if chance in chess, I know you have a higher chance of winning if you win the game itself because you could roll a one to a five, which are pretty good odds. And so the skill for the game is not the opposite of the luck. The same amount of skill is needed to succeed, but it just happens to be kind of crappy if you end up winning and your opponent just rolls a six on you. Just to be clear, this is a theoretical game that was actually devised by Richard Garfield in a lecture he was giving on luck and skill just to illustrate how luck and skill can both be very present in a game. Yeah, so it's just to get across the point People that... People don't you... actually play this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would be very strange and really punishing and terrible, and I'm sure no one would ever have any friends ever. But it's just to really get across the point that more luck in a game does not necessarily equate to less skill. Excellent. So one other thing I wanted to touch on quickly is the idea of 50% win rates, which I learned about this in Keith Bergan's podcast on clockwork game design, and I'll link the relevant episode in the show notes. I'm going to briefly go over what this is, but if you want to hear the whole thing more fleshed out, I recommend you listen to the episode. So 50% win rates are desirable in multiplayer games. You want, and essentially what's being described is that when two players sit down, they each have a 50% chance to win. And what makes this interesting is that it makes every game exciting, because you don't know who's going to win from the start. But like the example we said earlier, if you sit down a chess grandmaster against a complete novice, it's going to be a 100% to 0% win rate. And that's interesting for no parties involved. And luck is really good for facilitating win rate like this. That if you look at a game like Hearthstone, which came out in 2014, and it's just a super random lucky trading card game of sorts, the best decks only have like a 55% win rate. Because the luck is essentially dampening how much skill can be going to the game. Mm-hmm. Because the lucky player will often beat the skilled player. Yeah. Which can be frustrating for some people, but does make every game exciting. So a better way to possibly achieve a 50% win rate is to give players an MMR, which is short for matchmaking rating, and essentially just understand how good any given player is at a given time by a numerical value. And this this number changes based on how they perform. So if I have 1,000 MMR and you have 2,000 MMR, if I beat you, it's going to go up by a lot more than if I had beaten someone with 1,500 MMR. If that makes sense. And now I just, now just MMR sounds like a funny word to me. Yes, it does. (laughs) And the idea behind this is that over time, players are going to have a very accurate MMR. And then if you pair up players who have similar MMRs, the 50% win rate will almost always be present. With less randomness or more randomness? It doesn't matter. So long as the MMR is trying to be reflective of what's going on. The randomness will actually blur the MMR a bit. Because a player with a high MMR may just be someone who's on a really really nice lucky streak. And to that end, if you're trying to develop a game like this... If you have less luck and you let the skilled players win more and just kind of let the let players with who are really talented at the game have high MMRs float to the top, you're going to develop a really hardcore player base who are just trying to push their skills to limit because they can. They're not going to get bogged down by losing to worse players by virtue of luck. And on the same note, luckier games will be more accessible and kind of create a more casual crowd and let more players enjoy it, but at the same time it's going to frustrate the more skilled players because they're going to lose to the worst players because they got unlucky. And as often as you'd like to appease both crowds, not every game can be Guitar Hero and have a low floor and a high ceiling, especially competitive ones. It's true. That's very true. So one other thing you wanted to touch on was, what is one of the most frustrating things that can happen in a game? So for me, when you're playing a game and you have no choice, there is nothing you can do and you lose. That is always a very frustrating experience. 
So what I'm talking about here is the exchange between luck and skill when you feel like you've been playing the game really well so far with an opponent perhaps, let's say it's a card game, and you've been playing in your mind really perfectly, you've been making the best moves you possibly can, you're winning, you're ahead to win, you're set to win, and then the player across from you draws a card that is the be-all end-all, and there is nothing you can do to change your strategy, to adapt to what they're playing, and you lose because of it. This is a frustrating experience because the randomness in the game completely overtook any possible strategy you could have to combat this, and I think that is a frustrating experience. So when making a game with luck and skill, I think it's so important to consider that, yes, of course you can have luck in your game, but make sure that when something happens, like a random event, that there are ways for players to cope with that event, to be able to respond to it in a way that they decide to put their skills to use, perhaps, and come up with a new strategy in order to deal with whatever event just happened, whether that's their opponent drawing a favorable card, or maybe all the cards that you wanted on the board, maybe they all get taken, something happens, you should at least be able to develop a new strategy in order to overcome it. Or as Magic the Gathering calls it, counterspells. Counterspells. <laughs> I hate you. <laughs> yes, exactly. So that's just an important thing, I think, to Essentially, keep Essentially, always let the player have avenues to victory. Yeah. If they don't have that, they're not going to play the game, and the game will be very frustrating. Yes. There should always be some kind of counterplay, even to the most dominant strategies. Yeah. All right, you want to go into takeaways? Yeah, let's go into takeaways. So one of the takeaways we can have as gamers with dealing with games of luck and skill, it can be very frustrating to lose by being unlucky or from just a bad streak or just some bizarre occurrence in the game. And this can be especially difficult in high-stakes games where you're in a tournament or something like that. But a, situ but a way I've found to be able to cope with that kind of losing is just at least being able to foresee it. Understanding that if my opponent draws their unbelievably unbeatable card on this exact turn, I'm going to lose. And just kind of be okay with that before it happens. Letting it happen without foreseeing it can just be frustrating. Like, I can't believe this has happened and there was this is just completely unreasonable. I had a 96% chance to win this game from this position. On the other side of the coin, don't let getting lucky skew your understanding of the game, no matter how good it feels. I know you may get lucky and run over your opponents or whatever you're playing and think, I'm just the greatest player ever and I came up with a great strategy you may have been running a really bad strategy just with some good luck. And being able to understand that is very important. Just keeping a level head and saying, you know what, that went well for me. I do recognize I had some positive variance there. I don't know if the strategy is good or not yet. And the only way to really devise that is just try the strategy more and more and see how it goes. But keeping a level head in the face of good luck as well is also important to, to keeping a high win rate in the long run. So when considering a game that you're designing or playing perhaps, and you're trying to analyze how much luck should be included, how much skill should be included, a good way to think of it is that these we're gonna refer to as boundaries. So a lower boundary for luck is having so little that nothing exciting happens. This is why tic-tac-toe does not actually get better over time. Exactly, it's because <laughs> there's not a lot of luck that happens, there's not a lot of interesting strategies that can come out of it because it's very cut and dry. So that's kind of a good thing to look at for is can this game be innovated based on new strategies that can come in based on some RNG and some luck? If so, then that could be a good thing. Will the players still be seeing new situations on their thousandth playthrough? Yeah. So an upper boundary for luck 
So this is perhaps having too much. You don't want to have so much that the players do not have any avenues to victory. So this is what we briefly touched on before. Um, so just making sure that there's not so much luck that the magnum opus card gets drawn and then literally everyone else like immediately loses because it's like, well, how am I supposed to combat that? I do have the ultimate example here. Do it. <laughs> that if any of you know the game Yu-Gi-Oh!, you'll probably know of the character Exodia, <laughs> which is a character that you can play in the cards that essentially you have to assemble all five pieces of him. He, he is representing the game in five cards. And if you have all five of those cards in your hand, you win. Oh my goodness. But you draw five cards at the start of the game. So you can just high roll like crazy, draw all five pieces of Exodia, and your opponent does not get to take a turn. That's that's a perfect example. There is so much luck involved that your opponent literally had no way to do anything. They didn't even get a turn. So yeah, that's, that's a perfect so example. So if, if a strategy like that is too consistent, that your opponent had no avenues to victory, that's a problem. Because you because Exodia is still legal in the Yu-Gi-Oh! competitive scene. Nice. But it's just such an unreliable strategy that the game designer is like, you know what? If this happens 0.000001% of the time and it feels bad, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, and of course situations like that are fine because it does happen so little, but if your game you are noticing that these crazy strategies or that mechanics... 30% of the time getting killed by Exodia. Yeah, then perhaps maybe take a look at what you can do to combat that or at least give players an avenue to defend themselves or uh, another way that they can tra change up their strategy to win. So the boundaries for skill are a bit softer. We wrote down the lower boundary for skill to be a game that has so few strategic decisions that nothing matters and the game almost runs on autopilot. For like a game like War, the card game, you do not make any decisions. You play the game on autopilot and what happens, happens. Yeah, so the problem with this is that when there aren't very many decisions for the player, there's not really a feeling of satisfaction or progress for just kind of personal growth because there isn't really a way to grow with the game because you're just doing something randomly and hoping that, oh, maybe I'll win this time. So it helps to instill long-term um, play, like a long-term player base and loyalty to the game because people feel like they're building skills, they're doing something interesting, they're making interesting choices, then that's exciting being able to think about something and have the strategy you plan to play out. Yeah, but the reason this is a softer bound is games like war are still fun. Yeah, of course there's like a fun... Kids love playing war because <laughs> yeah. they understand it and it still feels high stakes to them at times and they can feel like they're good or bad at the game even though it is just a bit of a fabrication. So that's why it's kind of a soft bounds. Like, it's there if you're trying to service a higher skill, if you're trying to service a more intense gamer group, but it, it doesn't mean you can't go below that. So the soft upper boundary for skill is having so much skill that a better player will have a 100% win rate against a worse player. So this is why playing chess with Bobby Fischer isn't fun. And ways to combat this are what you brought up before, like a matchmaking system, where you pair players up against people of equal skill so that they'll have a better time, knowing that they feel challenged while also knowing that they have a possibility to win at the same time. Yeah, but at the same token, I'm again insist. I'm just again going to emphasize that this is a soft boundary because yes. I think there are some players who would love the feeling of having a hundred percent win rate and would just keep obsessing over the game until they got there. Well, yeah, I mean, chess is obviously a very popular and enjoyable game, and it can happen where players will have hundred percent win rates against people who are have lower skill than them. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just important to understand the goals of your own game and the feelings that you want your players to experience. All right, excellent. I think that was good. Yeah, thanks for tuning in, everybody, for the first official episode of Panic Mode. I think we did okay. Anyway, so that was a lot of fun. We'll see you all next time. So for the sign-off this week, we're going to talk about... Oh, my goodness. A certain game of cribbage we've played lately, which Brilliant. is... Brilliant. <laughs>
a card game which I think definitely falls into the low skill, low luck category. Yes. <laughs> and it's a game with a low floor and a low ceiling for skill. Yeah. And we were playing a game, and it's the game is basically first to 121 points, and you score points by doing all sorts of different things, one of which is one player cuts the deck, and the player flips the card that is cut. And if that card is a jacket, it's worth one point. It's and called we, Nibs, which I think is hilarious. Nibs. And we had both reached 120 points. We were neck and neck at the end of the board. Next point wins. Yep. And I even made, and then, so inevitably, you can probably guess where the story's going. Yeah. Oh, so, yeah, I can. Sh- I know, I can. Shelby cuts the deck. And I'm like, man, it'd be hilarious if I flipped a jack right now, scored my point, and won the game without anything else happening. Yeah. And lo and behold, that's what happened. <sighs> Which so. I am extremely frustrated by because I am the one that cut the deck. You just flipped the card. I did all the work. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, that okay, was... Maybe a bit of a flavor fail, but... Not only was that blindingly frustrating, I was like, Aiden, it doesn't even count. Let's let's do points and, like, count to the end. Like, let's just forget it. And Aiden's, like, being a good sport, and he's like, sure, Shelby, like, whatever you want. And so we started counting points so basically we all uh we both like play the cards in our hands and like tally them and then that can lead to more points as well called counters but my hand was very well set up against yours just kind of yes by luck of the draw because i had to put my card down first i put down a three aiden also happened to have a three and a pair is worth two points so he won again and i i was so frustrated i laid down my entire hand in front of me and i said okay pick a card where you won't win immediately and there wasn't one because our hands were so similar he had kept very similar cards to mine it would either cause a pair or it would add up to 15 which is also two points so there was in that scenario literally no way that i could possibly win and of course that's that's, frustrating it is extremely frustrating i almost threw aiden in the pool (laughs) but i guess you know we need to take our own advice i need to realize that that was some serious variance and it is not my fault as a player and yet i'm still so mad (laughs) and i'm gonna take the lesson that flipping jacks is a very good skill that i'm very good at oh my goodness you didn't i I was the one that cut the deck. I cut the deck. I'm the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of Panic Mode. You can reach us on social media at panicmode.net, all spelled out, or on our website, panicmode.net. We would love to hear any comments, questions, or feedback you have about today's episode. Just remember to always be kindly critical. We will be back next time to talk about top-down versus bottom-up game design, and we're pretty excited about it. So be sure to tune in then. Until next time.